Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really thrilled to welcome all of you to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Tonight's program, The Ascent of Woman, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support which has allowed us to bring so many great speakers to this stage. I'd also like to thank and recognize all of the Chairman's Council members who are with us this evening uh, and thank them for their great support, which enables our work, and of course, my great colleague, Dale Gregory, our Vice President for Public Programs, from whom you'll hear at the close of the evening. Tonight's program is presented in collaboration with our center, our new Center for Women's History, and we are really grateful to our partners at Hogan Lovells, who is the, which is the corporate sponsor of women's history programs at New York Historical. I want to note that the, um, the leader of our academic advisory group for the center is with us this evening, Professor Alice Kessler-Harris, and I'd like to thank Alice for all that she has done to make the center a reality. Thank you so much. And finally, I'd like to welcome guests from New York Historical's corporate member companies. We have representatives this evening from Bloomberg, BNY Mellon, Credit Suisse, and the New York Times with us this evening. We're very grateful for your partnership. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question-answer session. Uh, the Q&A will be conducted via written note cards. Uh, you should have received a note card on your way into the auditorium this evening. If not, our colleagues are still going up and down the aisles with note cards, so please take one. We'll be collecting the note cards later on in the program. We're thrilled to welcome author and historian Amanda Foreman, Foreman I'm so sorry, Amanda Foreman, to the New York Historical Society. Amanda Foreman is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the Sunday Times, and she is the author of several books, including The World Made by Women, which is forthcoming in 2017. Dr. Foreman served as 2016 chair of the Mann Booker Prize, and she is the co-founder of the literary nonprofit House of Speakeasy Foundation, as well as a trustee of the Whiting Foundation. Her latest work is the critically acclaimed BBC Netflix documentary series, The Ascent of Woman. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming Amanda Foreman to our stage. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here this evening. I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm especially thrilled that I have the opportunity now to talk to you about the series that is currently on Netflix called The Ascent of Woman. Now, I started this series, it's in four parts, in 2012, and it was going to be this global history of women. It was going to be called The World Made by Women. And it was going to accompany a book of the same title. 
So here we are five years later. The series is now called The Ascent of Woman. Um, it's not just on the BBC, as I said, it's on Netflix. But the book, alas, is quite late. It's still being written, as these things so often are. And it's not coming out in, in 2017. It's probably coming out in 2018. <laughs> and the chief difference um, between the book and the series is that the book is going to be longer, it's going to be more in-depth than a television series really ever could be. Um, but the fundamental argument uh, is the same in both. And it's this, that whether you look to the past or the present, the, the inclusion of women in the public space, from the economy to culture, is a vital component of a prosperous and peaceful society. And for women themselves, the argument is, and always has been, that we are in a struggle. And that struggle is for agency, authority, and autonomy. Now, in order to test the validity of this argument, we decided to do three things. First, we went back to the origins of civilization, to the moment when Homo sapiens transitioned from small hunter-gatherer clans to settled communities engaged in agriculture. And here we asked the question, what kind of gender relations existed at the dawn of civilization? Have women always been the second sex? Was patriarchy a natural or inevitable part of the human condition? Second, we looked at some of the social customs and laws that pertain only, only to women and examined how they evolved and whether their original intentions reflect the ways they are employed today. So, for example, we asked, when did speech become a male privilege? When was the veil introduced and, and why? And when did men and women start living in separate spheres. And finally, after looking at how women across the world have adapted themselves to various times and eras and subverted often the restrictions placed on them, we asked the absolutely pivotal question, what does all this mean today? And where do we go from here? Now, I think that understanding how things come about is one of the most important jobs that we do as historians. Um, we are rotten at being fortune tellers, but we are quite good at uncovering evidence and we can recognize patterns. When it comes to studying the origins of civilization, the best place to go is Çatalhöyük in Turkey, one of the first known settlements 
in human history. Inhabited from around 7,500 BC, that's the tail end of the Stone Age, its early inhabitants, between 5 and 8,000 people, lived at the dawn of agriculture. And one of the most exciting findings about Chattahoyak is that archaeologists are convinced that the settlement was highly egalitarian. Unlike later townships or societies, here, at the dawn of time, there was no division of status between the sexes. Now, you may ask, how do we know this? Well, according to Professor Ian Hodder of Stanford University, who's been leading the excavations for the past 20 years, all the evidence points to this. Men and women ate the same diet, they performed the same daily tasks, they were buried in the same way, and they lived in the same surroundings. Now, change to this egalitarian society didn't happen overnight. It took thousands of years for small settlements like Chattahoyak to become towns and for towns to become cities. Nevertheless, the rise of plough agriculture remains the single greatest revolution in the history of humankind. Everything was formed anew in the human landscape, beginning with different power structures to cope with new demands based around ownership, production, and surplus. Moreover, plough agriculture and the rise of agriculture produced a phenomenal rise in fertility of women, of domesticated animals, and the soil. And in turn, this led to competition for control, and hence the emergence of patriarchy. Now, the very first cities in civilization were in Mesopotamia. The word itself means between the rivers in what is now modern Iraq. Those rivers being the Tigris and the Euphrates. The inhabitants, known as the Sumerians, created a world that is not a million miles away from the one that we recognize today. With cities came the centralized state, the hierarchy of social classes, the division of labor, organized religion, monumental building, civil engineering, writing, literature, art, music, mathematics, law, not to mention a vast array of indispensable discoveries from the wheel, metallurgy, to systems of weights and measures. And during the 4th and 5th millennia BC, these urban centers of Mesopotamia were temple cities, each of which was dedicated to a particular god or goddess. And by 3000 BC, these temples were overseeing a complex system of political and economic activities. So accounts needed to be kept, grain needed to be measured and distributed, workers needed to be compensated for their labor, and all this required some kind of record keeping. And this became the foundation of writing.
The great question, though, is what did this mean for women? Now, the evidence suggests that at the beginning of Sumerian society, women had economic parity with men. For example, they could buy and sell land, they could own businesses, they could inherit wealth. And there's even a persuasive argument that women took part in the political life of these early cities. However, there was a long decline, a long and slow decline in women's status as these cities became larger and richer and their administrations more complex, their defensive needs more permanent, and their wealth more tangible. And power became increasingly concentrated into the hands of a male elite. Our earliest written evidence comes from around 2700 BC, where we find actual deeds of sales, including contracts to sell fields, houses, and slaves. And the earliest literary texts that we have date from approximately 2400 BC. That's a long time ago. So it's from that date onwards, which is nearly 5,000 years ago, that we have our first snapshot of early civilization. And what it tells us about the status of women is going to look, I think, pretty familiar to about just about everyone in this room. So, law. So the first surviving law code in history was proclaimed by King Urkagina of Lagash in around 2400 BC, 2400 BC. And its main concern was social justice, in particular, restraining the abuse of power by priests and royal administrators. But widows and orphans received extra protection, as did the poor, from exploitation. But the code went further than that, didn't just talk about widows and orphans and priests and aristocrats. It also contained two clauses that were directed specifically at women. One pertained to marriage, the other to their speech. The first stipulated, now this is a, an approximate translation, and to our ears, it will sound a little odd. This is what it says. As for women of former times, two men each could marry. But for women of today... That indemnification has been abandoned. Now, what does that mean? To be honest, nobody is really quite sure what that means. For a while, people thought it meant that this was a law against women committing bigamy. Then they realized that bigamy and polyandry, which is women having more than one husband, was never mentioned anywhere else in Mesopotamia, so that couldn't be the right translation. Then they thought perhaps it has to do with divorced women um, being able to remarry without having to pay a divorce tax. And perhaps that is the correct translation because there is a separate law code that refers 
to men getting divorced who used to have to pay a divorce tax and no longer had to. Who knows? Or maybe it's a law against women having two husbands in their lifetimes, whether or not they were widowed or divorced. But whatever the full meaning of this law, what's important about it is that for the very first time, Sumerian women were no longer the final decision makers of their own lives. Now, that's the first, that's the first law code. The second law code is incredibly clear. There's no mistaking the meaning of this one. This is the law code. Remember, this is the very first law code in existence that I'm talking about. If a woman, if a woman to a male has spoken bad words, which exceeds her rank, onto the teeth of that woman, a baked brick shall be cast, and that brick will be hung at the main gate. So there you have it. <laughs> at the threshold of civilization, what we see are the seeds of silence and silencing that we know all too well today. This silencing of women happened before Homer wrote in the Odyssey that Telemachus said to Penelope, Mother, go back up into your quarters and take up your own work, the loom and the distaff. Speech will be the business of men, all men, and of me most of all, for mine is the power in this household. This law code also appears before St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. So how did that develop? How did this develop over the next few centuries? Well, the first complete set of laws that we have in civilization is the Code of Hammurabi, which dates from 1770 BC. You can go to the Louvre and see it. There it is. This is a code that's carved on, shall we say, a rather phallic piece of black obsidian. And up at the top, it's rather hard to see from this photograph, there is a scene that depicts King Hammurabi receiving the lords from Shamash, the god of sun, justice, and order, whose mission was to, quote, protect the weak from the strong. And then below that are 282 carved laws, including, for the very first time, the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, as you may expect, the code is a mixed blessing for women. On the positive side, it recognized a woman's legal and basic right to own property. And this was vital because it gave women legal protection when it came to the control of dowries and their inheritance. The law also forbade arbitrary ill treatment or neglect. Wives who were ill or barren couldn't simply be discarded uh, in divorce. Women could keep their dowries, and in widowhood, wives had the right to use their husband's estates during their lifetime. Fundamentally, the women of Mesopotamia were recognized by law as distinct 
persons. But on the negative side, the code was a blow to women's economic and sexual freedom. In contrast to the Sumer of a thousand years before, women were now forbidden from doing any kind of economic activity outside the household. And even more damaging, in my opinion, was the power it gave to men over women's bodies. The law legalized patriarchy. Husbands and fathers now owned the sexual reproduction of their wives and daughters. And this meant that women could be put to death for adultery and virginity was now a condition for marriage. And in the case of rape, it wasn't just an assault against a woman, it was an economic offense against a man. So for example, if a father's daughter was raped, he suffered the loss of her bride price. She was, in a sense, now damaged goods. Of course, it's important to recognize here that we don't know how these laws always worked at the local level. These laws are unideal. But the driving force of them shines through. Male authority and patriarchal notions of male honor are now sacrosanct. But if you think that Hammurabi's law code marked a downward shift in the status of women, then <laughs> let me introduce you to the next imperial power in the region, the Assyrians, who would reduce it even further. The first complete law code we have from them, known as the Code of the Azura, are the 112 laws from 1075 BC. Now, in contrast to Hammurabi, over half of them, half of them, deal with marriage and sex. And in them, many of the protective measures for women in the Hammurabi Code have been taken away, and the price for non-compliance is ever more brutal. And what's so striking now is how these laws enshrine a kind of double standard. Men can do what they liked to their wives. They can ill-treat them. There is a law in this code that explicitly says that husbands can pull out their wives' hair, they can twist their ears, they can throw them out into the street without their dowries, and they can pawn them. Yes, they can pawn them if they need to. In short, they can do what they like to their wives, except kill them without cause. <laughs> and what's interesting now is that women, they don't, they don't, they don't just have uh, no economic rights and many burdens. They are also no longer to, they are no longer allowed to have abortions. If they do, they will be executed. If they commit adultery, they'll be executed. And if their husbands are guilty of a crime, they can be punished too. So for example, the wife of a convicted rapist will herself be raped in punishment. And the Azura Code also enshrines 2,000 years before the rise of Islam, the one article of clothing that still divides men and women today not to mention religions and nationalities from each other. And that article of clothing is the veil. 
The reference is in law number 40. It says, if the wives of a man or the daughters of a man go out into the street, their heads are to be veiled. The prostitute is not to be veiled. Maidservants are not to veil themselves. Veiled harlots and maidservants shall have their garments seized and 50 blows inflicted on them and bitumen poured on their heads if they wear a veil. The law clearly sets up a sexual apartheid between the respectable, meaning women whose body and life is defined by marriage, and the unrespectable, meaning a woman who is in some way outside the oikos, the patriarchal household. And that symbol of ownership, the veil, would become the ultimate mark of civilization in ancient Greece. And just how widespread the veil was can be seen in everyday objects like the one I'm showing you now, which is a little votive statue called a tanagra. And these depicted women in ordinary costume, and they reveal the very wide variety of veils that were worn outside the home. Now, the most common was the hymation shawl, that's this one, which could be pulled over the head to cover their hair. And then there were pharos veils, which covered the hair as well as the lower face. And finally, there was the tegedion, a full vase veil, face veil with eye holes. And that literally meant a little roof. And it was a symbol of the male house under which married women and daughters were protected. This is ancient Greece I'm talking about. This is the ancient Greece of Aristotle, Sophocles, and Socrates, not, not something... 2,000 years later. And as in ancient Assyria, the veil was a marker of class, but in Greece, it embraced something darker, much darker. A deep phobia of the female body and the idea that women's inferiority wasn't man-made, but rooted in nature. Women, as Aristotle argued, were incomplete and incontinent creatures that had to be contained. And moreover, the honour of the household was located within the body of the female. And so any transgression on her part, such as speaking too loudly in public, laughing too much, walking unaccompanied, uh, exposing any part of her body in any way, uh, not to mention physical relations with uh, a man other than her husband, these were all grave offences, possibly even worthy of death. Now, enough. This is not the full story. What I've discussed so far are some of the great markers of history and women's history in particular, but these aren't the only ones. So for the last part of my talk, I now want to show you the other side of history, the side that is no less real, no less important, despite having been left out of what you might call mainstream history. So first of all, I want to take, I want to take you back to the original law code of Urukagina in 2400 BC, where those first laws of marriage and silence appear. Now, as I said earlier, 
that code was an attempt to enshrine the ideals of social justice, uh, stipulating the first human rights against tyranny and oppression. And that makes that law code one of the most important documents in the history of the world. And reading between the lines, we get a glimpse of that bitter struggle for power between the temple and the palace, or today we would say church and state. Um, and finally, it's in this document, this document that silences women, that we find the word freedom used for the very, very first time. The word is amagi. In Sumerian, it means literally to return to the mother. So why, why would it, what's the relation between freedom and the return to the mother? Well, the intuitive explanation so far that we have is that it means the opposite because to return to the father is to be under someone else's control. So from the very outset, freedom meant the opposite of male domination. Power was a thing that women did not have, and therefore, in a fundamental way, it represented its absence. And this, I believe, is the real origin of our modern sense of Lady Liberty, the Roman goddess Libertas. Second, the silencing law. Well, here's the thing. Less than a hundred years after the code was written, there appeared the first known writer in history. And by that I mean the first writer whose name is attached to a piece of work. And that writer was Enhedwana, the daughter of Sargon the Great. Sargon came from the neighboring city of Akkad, and he was the first king, the first king in history, to unite all the cities of Sumer into a single empire. So to help convince the Sumerians of this colonial project that his empire was a good thing, Sargon ap appointed Enhedwana to be the high priestess, or En priestess, as it was called, of the moon god Nana in the city of Ur, which was the highest religious position at the time. And Enhedwana wrote the world's first literary masterwork, which was a collection of 42 hymns written on clay tablets in praise of all the temples and gods of her father's empire. The purpose of this was both religious and political, namely to create a theosophical system that legitimized Sargon's rule. Moreover, in her most important hymn, known as the Exaltation to Inanna, Enhidwana elevated the goddess of fertility, nature, and destruction to be above all the other deities. She elevated a female goddess. And she wrote to her, My lady, you are the guardian of the great divine powers. In the van of battle, all is struck down before you. With your strength, my lady, teeth can crush flint. You charge forward like a charging form. That is the first known piece of authored poetry that I've just read to you. 
And furthermore, in a wholly original move, Enhidwana added elements of her own life to the hymns. I am Enhidwana, she wrote. I am the brilliant high priestess of Nana. Now, 4,000 years ago, the use of the word I in poetry was simply unheard of. What makes the declaration I, Enhidwana, so, so moving is that despite the centuries of oppression and silencing of women that followed from that, what we have at the dawn of civilization is this really beautiful and confident statement of the female, I am. Now, as for Enhedwana's legacy, she created the paradigms of poetry, of psalms and prayers that became standard throughout the ancient world. Her form of hymn writing influenced and inspired the Homeric hymns of ancient Greece, as well as the prayers and psalms of the Hebrew Bible. Without Enhedwana to pave the way, the entire hymnal and musical tradition of the Christian church might have been very different. And while we're on the subject of hidden or forgotten influences, there are also many other women whose entire adult lives were spent at the center of politics. Establishment history pays some notice to the women who ruled, such as Queen Hatshepsut of ancient Egypt or Tamiris of the Scythians or Zenobia of Palmyra. But the queens, consorts, and princesses who played an indispensable role in royal politics have far too often been ignored or discounted. For example, among the very first ever recorded political spouses was the tireless Queen Shibtu, wife of, Queen, of King Zimri Lim of Mari in what is now modern Syria. As one of two major players in the region, the king was often away on military campaigns and he left Queen Shibtu to oversee the kingdom. His frequent absences meant that the two exchanged a treasure trove of letters, revealing a relationship that was both practical and loving in equal parts. As in this letter from Shibtu, she writes, all is well at the palace, all is well too at the temples of the gods and the workshops. I have read the omens for the health of my Lord. These omens are good. But my Lord must take care of himself when he is in the full sun. The fierce loyalty with which Shibtu carried out her role as wife and political helpmeet was the hallmark of the early political spouse. 500 years later, Queen Puduhepa, who was born in around 1290 BC of Hatti, which is modern Anatolia, successfully managed the kingdom during her husband, King Hatsuli III's many illnesses. And her letters to Ramesses II in Egypt and his equally capable wife, Queen Nefertari, show her to have been a shrewd and really quite skillful diplomat and negotiator. 
Pudu Hepper, for example, was able to extract extraordinary gifts out of the marriage pact between Ramesses and one of her daughters, and she could be marvelously blunt on occasion. For example, she wrote, doesn't Ramesses own anything? Do you really want to enrich yourself at my expense? This is not worthy of your good name and lordliness. I want gifts for my daughter. And apparently Ramesses evidently obliged. And finally, I would like to mention Queen Samu Ramat, better known in the ancient Greek version as Semiramis, wife of the 9th century Assyrian king Shamshi Adad V, and also regent for her son, Adad Nirari III. I know some of these names are quite a mouthful. Now, you may not have heard of Semiramis, but I'm sure all of you know of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. And it is believed by many, though not by all scholars, that she built the Hanging Gardens and much else besides during her regency. But it's difficult to, to assess her historical contribution when scholars can't even agree on her name or her era or whether she even existed. And that's the problem for historians who are working to restore a gendered balance to our past. There is no such thing as a level playing field when it comes to assessing the role of women. So as we peel back the layers of history, only to find a vastly different narrative than the one that's been given to us for hundreds, if not thousands of years, the question is, what does it mean for the 21st century? The poet John Donne wrote that every member of humanity is connected. No man is an island. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And in this era of global economy, Dunn's metaphysical conceit has become real, from China to America, from Vietnam to Africa. Humanity has become yoked together in ways that were once unimaginable and are now irreversible. The significance of this for women is beautifully demonstrated in the statistics quoted in a recent study called The Power of the Purse. It is estimated that if all the impediments and employment restrictions affecting Western women today were suddenly to disappear tomorrow, America's GDP would jump by 9% and the Eurozones by 13%. As it is, a milestone was reached in 2014 when in global terms, women controlled $15 trillion in purchasing power. And by 2028, we, we, we women, will be responsible for two-thirds of, two of the world's consumer spending. When women succeed, as the saying goes, the whole world succeeds. There are huge financial advantages that accrue to societies that practice gender parity. A study that was published by the universities of Chicago and Stanford revealed that 15% and perhaps as much as 20% of America's productivity growth over the past 50 years, that's more than three and a half trillion, 
can be traced to a single source, which is the removal of barriers to talents. The numbers speak for themselves. In 1960, just 6% of American doctors were female, and today that figure is heading towards 40%. And Britain is hardly any different. Women now outnumber men in medical schools, and they've almost, but not quite, achieved parity in the legal profession. Back in 1968, the women sewing machinists at the Ford Dagenham plant in England famously went on strike to protest being paid less than 15%, being paid 15% less than their male equivalents. The company held out until losses worth £117 million in today's money forced the two sides to the negotiating table. And even then, even then, the women were only able to nudge the needle a little, settling for an increase that paid them merely 8% less than the men. Still, their actions paved the way for the 1970 Equal Pay Act in England. And just how vital the Dagenham women have been to Britain's prosperity can be judged by those countries which have ignored the issue of women's pay. Russia, for example, did not pass a gender equality law until 2011. 2011. And by that time, the wage gap between men and women had increased in some areas to 40%. Economists claim that just addressing this imbalance alone would increase the Russian middle class by about 14% by 2020. But, you know, when political campaigners talk about creating a new era of gender participation, the issue at hand actually is much more than just pay discrimination in the West. Equally important are the future gains that lie within the grasp of women in developing countries. It's a fact that the countries with the greatest poverty, the least education, the highest threats to peace and security are also those countries where women suffer the most discrimination. And yet, you know, the new global economy plays directly to so-called female strengths, such as probity, self-reliance, self-improvement, forward planning. And studies have shown that women, women workers bring far greater returns to the economies of developing countries. They save more of their income than men, and what they do spend, they spend wisely on education, nutrition, and health for their families. So in short, women's freedom and economic growth go hand in hand. So what's holding women back? Well, in both developed and developing countries, one is the failure of almost all governments to realize that fiscal policy, that's government budgets, budgets, affect men and women differently. Government budgets are not gender neutral. So for example, in developing countries, investment in clean water and electricity eases housework, it frees time for mothers to earn money and for girls to go to school. If you cut funding to save money in the short term, then women spend their days fetching water and the economic growth of that country suffers. In Europe, if the British government diverted investment worth just 2% of the GDP from the construction sector to the care sector, it would create 1.5 million jobs instead of 750,000 jobs 
projected for the construction center. Around the world, many governments, including the US government, treat spending on physical infrastructure as investments, but spending on social infrastructure, such as childcare, as a cost. As Andy Warhol once declared, they always say that time changes things, but actually you have to change things for yourself. The truth is, throughout history, women have had to fight every step of the way to gain the same basic rights as men. Access to power, freedom of movement, and the right to self-determination. But I believe that once we accept that the history of women has no endpoint and is still in the process of being written, then we can be proud of what women have achieved. We can be vigilant about women's rights. And we can be united in ensuring that the next age of humanity is the age of equality. Thank you very much. Okay. So there are a few questions here. And um, the first one is, in what ways did childbearing affect the place of women? So I'm not going to answer that the way you think I might answer that. I'm going to go right back, right, right, right back to when we started to walk upright. Because that's actually really the revolutionary moment for women in childbearing. Because as you know, two things. First of all, when we stopped walking on all fours and began to walk upright, that changed the shape of women's pelvises. It narrowed. You simply couldn't have that kind of width of a pelvis and walk upright at the same time. And that narrowing of the pelvis meant two things. One, that women are the only animals in the world that require assistance in giving birth. No other animal needs help from another animal to give birth, just women. And the second thing is that it promoted the um, flow of oxytocin, which is a particular hormone. And that hormone is the opposite almost of adrenaline. Adrenaline is fight or flight. Oxytocin is tend or befriend. So what did childbearing do? Well, number one, it began the origins of community, of cooperation, of communication. All these, those three things are needed when you require the help of another sentient individual in giving birth. And second of all, the, the, love, the love hormone, as it's known, oxytocin, with its tend and befriend, is part of the building blocks of society. So that's what childbearing did. And that's, that's how it has affected the place of women in society. So that's number one. Number two, in history, the non-educated are typically not represented in artifacts and writings that have lasted to this day. How do you discover their story 
those who are not represented? Well, you know, there's a difference between life stories and then the bigger picture. The bigger picture tells us a great deal and you shouldn't, we shouldn't dismiss it even though it doesn't tell us the stories of individuals. And the bigger picture, for example, is what we get from Chattahoyak when we looked at these skeletons and discovered that men and women had the same diets. Now, that doesn't give us their names, but it tells you that when a man and a woman lived together, they didn't lead separate lives. They ate, drank, worked, grew old and died in a measure of, of an egalitarian society, and that's important. So you can learn an awful lot, but what you'll never get without access to words or pictures for, by an individual is that kind of life story that really we crave, we all crave narrative. How do you think women's place in US society today compares to other periods in history? Well, here's the interesting thing. I think it's a very common misconception that uh, the history of women is one long unbroken line of misery and darkness to light and freedom. That just isn't the case. That if anything, what we can see from ancient history is that in fact, history and women's history is really a series of wild swings and ups and downs from different eras, different cultures, um, different measures of freedom, inclusiveness, and as I said, autonomy, agency, and authority. And that the reason why that's important isn't simply because, hey, hey, gee, who knew that? That's not the reason it's important. It's because when you think that you've had progress, it suddenly seems to be perhaps inevitable or um, something that is one's right and therefore in a Hegelian sense what is, is right and will stay that way. And that isn't true. Everything that is gained can be taken away. It can be lost. And that's why we have to be vigilant. There is absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that the rights and equalities that men and women enjoy today in this country are going to be around in 50 years, 100 years. There's no guarantee. In fact, history tells us there's quite likely to go backwards as it is to go forwards. So I, I guess I would say that um, women's place compares to other periods in history is one of flux, as it always has been and so it probably always shall be. What do you believe will be the impact of a women's strike, such as the women's march and the planned day without women? Oh, that's a very interesting question. You know, there are two minds about this. When Aristophanes wrote his play, um, <laughs> Lysistrata, about the women's strike, he obviously made fun of it. Uh, but at the same time, it clearly, the thought of the, the very thought of that idea clearly sent shivers down the backs and spines of the ancient Greeks that one day they might be unable to control their wives. 
Now, we don't live in that kind of society. But what happens when you have any kind of general mass uprising is that it forces the conversation in a, in a direction that perhaps it wasn't going to go to in the first place. And talking and conversation and awareness is how we get things done. There's currently a debate going on in, in Britain about which woman should be honoured. Should it be Millicent Fawcett, who helped to start the women's movement in 1869 and was a pioneer in women's education, starting universities, and then went on to the vote, or Emmeline Pankhurst, who was the woman who was famous for chaining herself to railings and led the movement with the slogan, deeds, not words. So one would throw bricks through windows, the other would hold endless meetings with MPs and things. Now, I personally believe that it's actually it's words more than deeds that in the end get things done. Maybe history will prove me wrong. But I think that you often find that um, when people are presented with an oppositional force, they push back. Whereas when people are presented with dialogue, persuasion, conversation, an attempt to find common ground, they're more likely to open their minds and be willing to consider the other side of the argument. But I guess we'll just have to see. When does marriage begin? <laughs> well, here's a really fascinating thing. So if you look at the two ancient societies that we know the most about, which is Mesopotamian on the one hand and ancient Egyptian on the other, and both of them really start to come together around the same time. Both of them begin to have writing around the same time, although the Mesopotamian Sumerian language is slightly more advanced initially. So the Mesopotamians have a whole raft of marriage customs, laws as we know, and um, quaint traditions about this and that, what the bride wears, what the groom says, whose house they go to first, parties, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, how dowries are, are decided. Okay, so that's what we think of as the norm. Let's, let's put a line at 3000 BC. Now, you just, you know, go across the way to ancient Egypt. There is no such thing as marriage in ancient Egypt. I'm not saying that people didn't live together. Of course they did. But there was no ceremony. The state was not involved in marriage at all. There was just serial monogamy. People came together. They had children. They generally stayed together. If they didn't, they separated. There was no fault divorce. And people just split their property. If, one, if generally the husband behaved badly, there might be a marriage contract which needed to be fulfilled, which ensured that the wife had her uh, dowry returned to her, had maintenance, alimony, that kind of thing. But there was no such thing. There, there was no such thing that we would call a marriage. And that lasted pretty well for over 2,000 years. 
So, it, you know, it's we. I think we all need to be better educated in high school about these ancient civilizations because I think we all have a kind of idea of what we think life was like then and which is what we reflect today but it's not the case often there are many many different paths many different historical avenues to how we came to be who we are today so there you go now how are we doing a oh, couple more minutes Oh, yes. Why, <laughs> why is it that men in, anything to do with men in history is considered universal and anything to do with women in history is considered niche or special interest? <laughs> do you know that's the most fascinating question? Uh, until very recently, I was um, chair of the Man Booker Prize. And one of the, I'm not telling tales out of school by saying this, but one of the really fascinating discussions we had was how in literature, when many of these novels are judged, that it's exactly the same thing. That books written about any kind of male experience was considered just, well, I mean, that's just writing about life, isn't it? And then anything that happened to be written about the female experience from the point of view of a daughter or a wife or whatever, well, wasn't that rather narrow? <laughs> and, you know, there is, I mean, there is no answer to this. There's no, well, there's no polite answer to this. <laughs> but, but, but I think you know, before we get cross, I mean, you know, it's not so niche. Here we all are together. It's a nice large crowd, a big audience. It's mixed. There aren't just women here, there are men too. So perhaps we're beginning to change. Perhaps that there is a, a, a sense of a universal experience that we are accepting and that one half of the, of the human race isn't special interest or niche. Anyway, thank you very much. <laughs> Amanda Foreman, thank you so much for a very interesting talk. Yeah. And we look forward to uh, watching her BBC series on Netflix and your book coming out next year, and we hope we'll see you again, too. Thank you. Let's give her a great hand. So before you leave, if you want to join in this movement to uh, attend wonderful programs on women, which is another universal story now that we found that out tonight, please come join us on March 7th when we will have Billie Jean King, a real trailblazer, interviewed by David Rubenstein for one of the History with David M. Rubenstein series. We hope we'll see you all there. Thank you so much.